human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I get my mind and my heart blown wide open by the brilliant Katina Michael. There aren't enough superlatives in the world to describe Katina, a professor, speaker, writer, and a passionate pioneer of thought leadership in the future of technology. Her heart is bigger than her whole body. From the School for the Future of Innovation at Arizona State University to Wollongong University in Australia, Katina's impressive credentials pale in comparison to her unwavering commitment to deep, expansive compassion and empathy in technology, in academia, and in every minute of every day of life. Wow, I just love her. And as you'll hear, I get a little tongue-tied from the overwhelm. Katina is the real deal. Treat yourself to episode 12, Humans are the Smartest Machines, with Katina Michael. All right, I am here today, well, not really here, but across the world today, but here in the headphones with Katina Michael, uh, and she is an extremely accomplished uh, engineer, professor, speaker, writer, uh, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. So Katina, would you mind um, introducing yourself to the people, however you see fit? Yeah, uh, Katina Michael, coming to you from Australia at this moment. Uh, I'm near Surf Beach in Kiama, and uh, who am I? I'm a child of the universe. <laughs> I uh, love the water. I love the sun, especially the sunrise, and I love to be with people. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Yes. See, I, I love you already because you begin by introducing yourself as a person first before anything else. And of course that is um, what leads myself and uh, my mentor Jumana, uh, empathy, heart, all these things that are the through line and the lifeblood of human beings. So no matter what job we do, we have that in common. We have sunrises and sunsets in common. Um, I wanted to begin by saying, uh, in the brief email interactions I've had with you so far, you've led with this rare openness and generosity of spirit that is um, layers deeper than a typical, you know, first introduction. I mean, of course, there are, most people are kind and polite uh, with a potential business collaborator, but you have been so very open. And I wonder if you could talk about what you attribute that openness to. If it's something that you learned as a child, something that you learned over time or something that you were born with, what would you say? Oh, that's such a hard question um, to reflect on. Uh, you know, I feel there's no time to waste in life. Mm -hmm. uh, through different parts of my life, uh, death has been something uh, that I'm acutely aware of. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't see death as an end but I also see it as a way to understand the fact that your heart is beating, that the other person's heart is beating and there is a connection. Mm -hmm. That connection is, I think, what makes the world go round. And I don't always feel very open uh, completely 
particularly to strangers. Um, but if I sense in my heart a reciprocity or a, or a valve for trust, uh, I will lead with that. And so, you know, time is love. We have no time to waste. We want to be able to share with the other person uh, directly. And, you know, I always think, imagine we had a conduit between one heart and the other heart, mm -hmm. and the heart was constantly speaking to the other heart, whoever that was. It could be your spouse, it could be your child, it could be a co-worker. And we have these reflections in our mind, but the heart is a different vessel. And I just feel um, that there is no time to waste. And I think sometimes there's layers upon layers upon layers of hiding. Uh, but you asked me where that where that comes from. Um, I think it all starts with your family. Uh, I think I was possibly born with certain qualities that were uh, uh, built upon by my family surroundings and perhaps a early lifetime struggle uh, that the family had to band together to get through. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's from observing other members in your community. I came from uh, a community of uh, Greek diaspora uh, and the migrant experience was a big thing, but again, family, cousins, extensions from the village back home, all of these are opportunities to actually uh, engage with others uh, at spiritual gatherings, a community of the faithful, for example, at a weekly sort of meeting time. Um, there was also being a school student, you know, you learn a lot from school. That's one of the places where you observe others in leadership roles, uh, classmates and, and strategies and how to build on things, but then ultimately sporting groups and I love sport uh, and the workplace. So all of these are opportunities, but I think it's a life journey, but I don't think I was always this open, uh, particularly in my early twenties. I think I was almost the opposite, but I did love to connect with people at a meaningful level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I'm curious then what happened in your twenties that transformed you in that way? Was it was it entering the workforce? And uh, did it come from just a curiosity to, to know people that, that sort of overrode um, the tendency to hide? Um, so throughout my childhood, uh, one of my siblings uh, developed an acute form of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a survival time for the whole family to see the eldest sibling uh, go through a mental health challenge, uh, which pervaded most of our, uh, you know, period of growing up. It was never an excuse for anything. In fact, uh, I was commenting to someone the other day that despite the struggle we all went through, uh, we always had a smile on our face mm -hmm. and we were always together. We would not stop life. We would go to picnics. We would go to gatherings. But the disorder uh, somewhat uh, was a taboo for a lot of people at the time. And so uh, I think you do learn to hide things uh, in, a, in a time where you don't actually understand them. You are ignorant of what is going on. You're trying to process the struggle, the suffering. Um, but also you kick into care mode, which is much more than pity and sympathy. It's survival mode, but it's also care mode uh, for the other. Uh, but at around uh, 18 years of age, I had finished high school. I was in first year university. I got married unexpectedly, to be honest. Wow. Uh, yeah, my husband proposed and, and there we had it. We had a wedding by the end of the year. Uh, and that changed me dramatically. 
it made me more personal and more private, actually. Um, a lot of people, I think, expected me to become a nun at school, but uh, instead I got married. <laughs> <laughs> Why did people expect you to become a nun? I was very much, uh, you know, into the readings, into the prayer life, uh, into the mode that was like, uh, I'll worry about boys one day, you know, not now. Uh, I was very much sensitive to my body, my mind, and keeping myself as pure as possible uh, during my teens when a lot of others were tempted by other things. So I guess that's one reason. I was really about uh, developing my education, working really hard, uh, having the opportunity that my parents did not have. They didn't finish uh, primary school. Um, my dad, I think his studies were interrupted in the beginning of third class, third grade. Uh, and my mum barely finished sixth grade. So I was very much into the books, uh, into the study. And I don't think I was born with gifts. I really worked hard uh, in terms of my education. And I think I went from zero to 100% uh, over an 18-year period. But of course, uh, at that time, uh, the last thing I, dis I was thinking of doing was getting married. It was a spontaneous question that was asked. And I think at that time I decided uh, to focus on my university studies. I was in a scholarship degree um, and there was really not much time for extensions beyond the nucleus, right? My husband, my parents, my siblings, uh, my in-laws, and just a few friends I could count on my one hand. You know, that was a nice time of retreat. It was a nice time of reflection. I remember reading a lot during that period, but coming out of that probably around I could even say it was when I started my university life, you know, as an academic, which was also unexpected. You know, I never had this thing, I'm going to finish a PhD, then I'm going to go into academia. Mm -hmm. Just the opposite. My husband said to me when we got married uh, and I was so young, you know, you need to do a PhD because you've got the capacity. And I believed him and I did it. <laughs> so I could not be any longer closed when I started working and I had thousands of students before me because they're all vying for your attention. Sure. And sure. And it does require you to give quite a bit of yourself, um, you know, outward that you had to ex expand the nucleus, kind of explode the nucleus. Um, but, but just to, just to look at your, your website and, and look at and all of the things you've done. I mean, you seem like a unicorn to me. And one of the main reasons why is because it is so clear, you know, that you have, that you are driven by this faith, or as we were talking about in our emails, this love, this sunshine. And, um, and I wonder what it was that propelled you into the area specifically of technology and the future of technology, humanity and technology, tech ethics. Um, you seem to be at the center of this Venn diagram of um, sort of a very uh, soft, um, warm, uh, heartful way of being and technology, which some might perceive as, you know, the opposite of that, as cold. So why technology? You're so right. You know, I went through uh, fast recruitment at the end of my university information technology degree, and we were really sought after our scholarship class. I think I must have had like 40 interviews. Funnily enough, I had a lot of job offers and I said no to all of them at the end because I went into study. And then unexpectedly, again, unexpectedly, uh, found this job on campus, which propelled me into a, a universe of networking and telecommunications. But 
to begin with, my heart was very open to technology. My brother uh, was a university student in 1990. I was midway through high school at that time and tech was the big thing, you know, and I could see the transition happening before me. I remember being at the cash register, which was ting, you know, punch the, the, the dials through and you'd, you'd have something come out. Mm-hmm. And then I saw this wave of barcodes and then this wave of magnetic stripe cards and I was only five or six. Um, and so I think the tech movement occurred before me. I remember uh, someone from the bank coming to the school and saying, you know, you now can have a key card. I was in fourth or fifth grade and it was like, what's a key card, but I only have cents in the bank. You know, how can you, can you, I put up my hand. I said, can you um, withdraw um, 50 cents? And she laughed, you know, cause it was only notes, okay. but I saw that tech change. Right. But you're probably saying what happened to me? Well, at the end of one of these fast track interviews with PWC, um, and it was Price Waterhouse at the time, it wasn't even PWC, it was PW. I had the debrief head recruiter come up to me and she said, you know, in your psychographic test, you said that you like poetry and you like computers. And I said, yes. She said, well, none of our partners do. And it was one of those moments at, you know, seven, uh, sorry, I was by then 19 and a half, 20 years of age. It was like, huh? Like, because your partners, none of them have ticked in the psychographic results, you know, that they love poetry and computing. You're looking at me as if I'm odd. And so that was an aha moment where I think I realized a lot of things. And I said, well, is there anything else? And she goes, yes. Um, you know, you believe in a God. And I said, you mean I was the only person to tick the yes box to that? And, I, and it was like, it was one of those psychographic sex tests that said yes, no, or true, false, or you don't have to answer. I answered every single one of those 400 questions. Um, and I didn't have anything to hide. And, and I think that that was a shock to the recruiter. But back to what has moved me. Well, I think, you know, you go into a degree, I was lured into the technology degree because of the scholarship, but also because of the training. It's one of those robust undergraduate degrees that showed you the whole spectrum of the business world. Um, it was fast changing. We had internships. I ended up working with Anderson Consulting and also Otis Elevator Company. It was great. It was like the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> and then when I came out of that, I thought, what am I going to do with that now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I ended up in a telecommunications company for six years. But there was one project that got me. And when I was starting to feel over time a little bit uneasy, and that was the final project I actually did which was to rebuild Afghanistan after the bombing of Afghanistan, in particular Kabul. Wow. And I was basically asked to give a back of the envelope um, sort of network design for a mobile switching sort of uh, 3G network. Mm-hmm. And it was like, uh-huh. So one state has gone and dropped bombs on another state. And now me, as someone working in industry, is supposed to offer uh, resolution, which is to rebuild the things that maybe I've broken mm-hmm. and I'm going to get paid for it and I, I might get a commission. No, that doesn't seem right. Wow. That's wrong. So I really shifted gear yeah. uh, at that point in time. Wow. That, wow. That's a profound moment. I mean, I, and I'm very interested in, in pivot moments like that. And I think, 
you know, many people would have acted differently, but you have this very consistent uh, North Star inside of you, it, it feels like. Um, and uh, I wonder if, if, you, if you have any examples of working uh, in technology with other tech people where you felt like your conscience uh, made you push back on something. Uh, does that make sense? Like, um... Yes, definitely. And the push comes with time and experience because you're being led at the beginning. And so you're very active and fresh and excited to enter the workplace. Sure. And when you enter the workplace, you're relying on others to instruct you, to inform you, to mentor you, to perhaps be your friend. Uh, but there are all these things happening at the time. Some people even perhaps protective, particularly at the time I joined the workforce where the internet was not prolific. We had an intranet, but basically you would be spoon fed, you know, plan of records. You'd be spoon fed product details. You'd be spoon fed um, design issues or customer engagements by your leadership. You know, there was none of this. You can find it on the internet stuff. Right. Uh, you know, it was convoluted uh, at around about 19... Uh, 96, 97, uh, things changed thereafter. But really, you know, you come to a realization and no one can shortcut that realization for you. I mean, I remember asking such basic questions when I joined the workforce, what is a vendor? Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds very, you know, uh, common knowledge today to young people, but actually I wanted to understand exactly how the corporation I worked for actually functioned in the bigger value chain. I was always intrigued by now, where do I fit? Where does this company fit? Okay, so we have customers and there's a supply chain side, right? There's a, there's a demand and there's a buy side. And, and so I wanted to know all of these things, but if there was a moment, I think it came about a year before that, if I can call it the Kabul moment, mm -hmm. um, which was uh, going to Hong Kong. I remember someone uh, in the organization saying to me in Australia, you know, we have to put this gold crown around you or ring around you. I think the, that's the expression they used. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was mature enough to think, uh, you know, I don't like these kinds of comments because they lead to, you know, no one has a, a gold dome around their head. You know, we're all fallible and we're not perfect and we're definitely not experts. If we think we know something, we know nothing. Mm -hmm. So I was a bit cautious, you know, I knew I had done well in a, a major customer bid here, but the last thing I really wanted to hear was we need to place this gold thing around your head because that's when, you know, it probably descends below the top of your head to your neck and then becomes a stranglehold. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah, it's true. And, and I remember having no sleep going across to Hong Kong, uh, being called in very late, I almost felt like, what am I doing here? Uh, presenting to a room full of people. I think I was not beyond 21, 22. And the room full of people was $10 billion deal over 10 years. And yes, that was enough uh, rope to hang yourself. <laughs> but I remember going back to the office uh, after the shortlisting process uh, on the client side, just feeling good, but also got some very difficult questions that no one came to my aid to support me at. And I was thinking, okay, what's going on here? But I quickly realized something was not right. So the next morning I turn up to work, of course. And uh, the big guy says to me, are you still here? Well, is that, is that how you treat someone who's literally flown halfway across the road world, uh, not slept overnight, trying to punch in these new financial figures, uh, look at demand estimates, do a lot of the previous research. You know, are you still here? Couldn't the person have said, 
good try yesterday. We didn't make it. Maybe you want to book your flight home. Yeah. But I realized at that point it was about commissions and I was disgusted that I was being treated the way I was mm-hmm. by someone who literally wanted to make a 1% commission to retire for the rest of their life. And that's when I knew this business is not for me into the longer term. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that was my pushback. That, and you know what I said to that person? I said, without crying, without breaking down, because at that age, you're fragile, you're young, you're female. I looked at him in the eyes and I said, I'll be on the next plane out of here. I'll be on the next plane out of here. And I was. Wow. Wow. But, but in that moment, in that moment where there was a clear lack of empathy, uh, someone was being guided by their greed over their empathy. It sounds like you learned something so impactful that then you would go on to pass down that lesson. Uh, and I wonder if you could speak to um, how you, how you uh, teach with, with empathy, how you teach specifically uh, technology concepts uh, with empathy. And you're, um, you know, have been a professor, um, the program chair of the Master of Science in Public Interest in Te- uh, Interest Technology at the School for the Future of Innovation and in Society at uh, Arizona State University. Uh, and uh, which I'm super interested in. Um, and the future of technology often doesn't include uh, the concept of empathy. It's not the first thing that comes to mind. So you have this platform, you have these students. Uh, how do you insert empathy into your, into your teaching? You know, it's funny. I've been thinking about this since we made contact, uh, Lisa. And one of the things that happened when we were building large-scale, wide-area networks uh, at one of the companies, and I can mention it was Nortel Networks because the company is no longer, though it was one of the biggest companies around the period of uh, 2000s and beyond, Mm -hmm. um, was that we never spoke to our end users. We never engaged. You know, I would sit sometimes and do desk studies from Australia. Then if we were fortunate enough, the, the size of the bid was big enough, I would fly to the country, which was quite often. I spent three months in Taiwan, for example, so much more in Hong Kong and Singapore and so forth. It's like, but we never asked the people, what do you want here? You know, what we used to think was, oh, we can do drive-bys in our, you know, stretch limos and we can go and categorize, uh, you know, areas of Manila into poor, uh, you know, high socioeconomic, et cetera, et cetera. We had these geodemographic uh, things. We'd buy Bureau of Statistics data. You know, you'd crunch the data from the desktop without even seeing the place sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then you would go, oh, see that big high rise there? We reckon we could flog off this much cable television in there because, you know, the Filipinos are hooked on TV. And so this kind of mentality from the engineering side, you know, it seemed normal to me. I never questioned it because how else would you do a customer demand study? How else would you know what your capital expenditure was if you didn't dimension the network? How else would you go ahead and do market geodemographic market studies to understand the kinds of services that you could sell and how much you could sell them at? But it was all about economics. Right. It wasn't about people. Mm-hmm. And so one of the problems that we have today is that we're still in the stuck in this industrial revolution stage, this mass production that says, I build, you buy, you know, right. uh, I build, you come, you give me money, but actually this is changing. And so how do I imbue this in my everyday teaching? Well, who are you? What is your role? What is your life world in society? What do you want from the world? What do you need? And, and one of the studies that I've, uh, 
put forward um, is to look at a, a study for homelessness where I ask one question of a homeless person is what do you need today? What do you need? Yeah. You know, it's not what can I sell you? It's not what, what can I flog off tomorrow and, you know, keep my company afloat? That economics is killing us as a society. So if you're asking me the empathy, the empathy is I gave up a lucrative position in industry, you know, where I could have, if I use my ingenuity, done really well for myself. Mm-hmm. But what's the point? Are we going to take it with us? The, the point here is if we keep going on the trajectory that says I mass produce and you buy in bulk and you flog it off, you know, we're going to find ourselves with climate change issues. We're going to find ourselves with a poverty cycle that's worse than ever before. We're going to find ourselves not reaching our sustainable development goals. We're going to find ourselves a cold society, a society that doesn't even talk to each other because we're talking through the blasted machines. And so the machines are great if they help you develop things and create things and innovate. Of course they are, right? They're going to take a lot of the slave work out of uh, what we've been used to, particularly what my dad went through, perhaps in factories. Yeah. Although the money was good for his family as a migrant. Um, but what are we doing with this? Where are we going? Do we care? Are we going to pause? Or are we just going to keep producing these things that people buy? And so the empathy comes from, first of all, if you enter my room, if you enter my world, if you enter my sphere, I don't care what we have to do together. How are you? You know, this is the first question. How are you? You know, are you going, are you having a baby? Are, are you having a relationship breakdown? Are you ill? Has there been a death? Uh, have you moved residence? Have you moved workplaces? Tell me, what, what do you need from me? Then we can start talking about other things. Where do we meet? Where do we find congruence? Where do we find that intersection you mentioned? Yeah. Wow. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's so refreshing to hear you say that. And, um, uh, and with such vitality, really, uh, especially because I feel like uh, the concept of empathy has become such a popular um, like piece of jargon almost, uh, which it, it, better that it's there than not there at all. But I do feel like it's been sort of co-opted in a lot of professional settings as just a, 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 a box that can be checked, you know, by the HR department and not actually put into action. And to hear you speak, oh, you know. Exactly. Because, yeah. Lisa, it's exactly that word. Can you tell me more about the action part? Because I think you hit the nail on the head. Can I tell you more about the action part? <laughs> yeah. Can you? Because I... Yeah, it's exactly what you said. It's about, it's about leading with how are you? How is your heart today? Uh, can, we, can we level with each other as people um, before we jump into... Because... Uh, that's the, that's the point, right? We're here to connect. And if we weren't here to connect, there would only be one human being on planet earth. But as, as it is, there are many of us. And I see us all as um, part of one whole, all connected, all sort of um, connected by one large consciousness that is experiencing itself through each of us. Um, yes, it's, it's social relationships make things happen, right? Yeah. No man is an island. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, work done with two or more is always more beneficial. And if we start with, you know, this notion of pity, you know, often we see a coworker or a colleague or a member of the community that have gone through some uh, 
suffering or difficulty in their life. And sometimes people, all they have is to say, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry for you. And as you say, that's a start, you know, but it's pity. And I think people don't want pity. They want more, I feel for you, which is sympathy, but even beyond that, right? You know, you go to the, the news agency and you, you buy a card after someone's passed away and it's a sympathy card. You know, yeah. I feel for you. I'm so sorry for your loss. But then even that is not enough because they're seeking empathy. I feel with you, not I feel for you. I feel with you. I'm alongside this journey with you. And then the biggest part is, as you say, the HR want to tick the empathy box. Actually, it's compassion. And it's, I'm moved by you. It's not just, I've, you know, it's not, I'm sorry for you. I feel for you. I feel with you. It's, I'm moved by you because that I'm moved by you is action. That means I'm going to do something with you. I'm going to go along this journey with you. And I'm going to check in tomorrow and next week. And maybe I don't have time in, in, the, in the context, maybe in six months time, but I have you in my heart. I carry you with me. And I'm moved by you means action because when we look at communities where there are social relationships, like the community I grew grew up in, the migrant community, Mm -hmm. the school community that was very multicultural, my workplaces, my my spiritual strongholds, uh, social relationships were about being together and that we moved together. And it's like a dance. It's Mm -hmm. like when you go to visit a, a religious location and there are, People, they all have their roles, whoever it is and wherever you are. And there's something musical about it. There's something rhythmic about it. There's, there's a, and I don't mean to stress the ritual side of this so much. It's rather there is movement and it's dynamic. And that dynamism makes you get out of bed in the morning. You know, I often think, um, what, what is it about my work that I love so much? It's like a dance. It's like a melody. It's like I know I'm going to go to the office. I'm going to see beautiful people. We'll respond together. We'll work together. We'll try and find a solution. We may not find a solution, but we're we're together, and that is what COVID has killed at the moment yeah. because we're so disconnected physically, and a lot of our students, our young people, are suffering because they relied on this dynamism, this movement to feel like they were important and part of something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what's suffered during this time frame is that our young people, our 18 to 24 year olds in particular, of whom a quarter have thought about suicide in the last 30 days, they're missing this movement. You know, this was CDC numbers, not my numbers. Mm-hmm. A quarter of American young people between 18 and 24 have had suicidal ideation in the last 30 days. Why? Because they're missing this dynamism, this collectiveness, this sharing, this uh, where is my place in the world? And we have to help each other know what that place is. We develop that together, not alone. Yes. Uh, and so, something that you said about um, uh, compassion and, uh, and being moved by someone. That, I mean, I, I love the idea of there being motion involved with it because it does keep, it does keep even concepts of, um, of technology or of, you know, even remote work, which, which may be like from the head up it brings them back down into the body. Um, and so I, I'm just, I'm so blown away to hear you talk about this because um, it's rare, you know? Like I, I feel um, so much physical energy speaking to you um, and connecting with you in this way um, that I'm almost overwhelmed by it. Um, and uh, I, I wonder, you know, 
Is there a possible future of technology that does, like what is your ideal vision of technology? A technology that really serves the humanity in us. Um, social networks that serve the humanity in us. Is it possible? Of course it is. So long as we're connecting for the right reasons and not exploiting each other and have trust. And the exploitation part is what we're sort of coming out of at the moment. You know, it's, it's this notion, again, going back to the economics, going back to these strongholds, these vanguards that have said, we have the power. You need to come to us for the services. You need to come to us because we feed you. We feed you Wi-Fi. We feed you the air that you breathe. And in fact, it's now commonplace for people to visit each other's homes. And the first thing they say before even saying hello is, do you have Wi-Fi? Well, everyone has Wi-Fi now. And then they ask for the password. And the greatest thing to do is to resist. Do you really need the Wi-Fi? Why Wi-Fi? Why? <laughs> so, you know, it's like the, the resistance, we're feeling it. We don't know what's going on. It's awkward. We know we're enslaved to some degree by the tech that we use. And it sometimes doesn't feel good. Um, but we're coming out of this control mechanism, this economics, uh, which dictates you must buy from me and I am your provider. And without this, you can't survive. Actually, we can survive without it. Increasingly, if we allow things to get to a point where we don't exist, if we don't have a mobile or we don't exist, if we don't have an electronic banking mechanism or we don't exist, if we don't have a telephone or a computer, that's a, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. It means we can't live off the grid. And so that's not um, tech serving humanity. That's tech enslaving humanity. Yeah. Do, do I agree with a digital transformation? Of course I do. Do I agree with the way it's happening right now? Absolutely not. I'm finding that this one size fits all mentality, again, because it's about mass production. It's about having control and power. It's about me giving you the service. This is a problem. And what we need to do is give communities back control of the data, of their service offerings, of their ability to provide the data and the services to their people. And who are these communities? I don't know. Let's ask the communities to form. And they are, they have formed. They, they have been somewhat dismantled by this transformative process, but we need them to be breathing because there's something ancient about communities. There's yeah. something that th doesn't polarize between, you know, two parties, two political parties, you know, right now the one size fits all has meant uh, polarization. You either believe this or you believe that there's nothing in between, right. but the truth is we're all somewhere on that spectrum. We're neither left or right. We're somewhere sitting in that spectrum. And that's what I'm hoping that technology will address is the spectrum, but also the communities. I love that. I love thinking about um, the, the ancient uh, tribal nature of community and how, if you think of a social network in that, that tribal way instead, how it might change the way it looks. Um, that is super inspiring. Um, I wonder if you could speak on uh, how you think, because I, I, found, I found an interview of you talking about um, technology hurting our uh, intelligence and on PBS. And I wonder if you could speak about uh, what, how technology has changed our emotional intelligence uh, for better or for worse. On the worst side, I, I guess that's easy for me to speak on, uh, given that particular interview. Uh, the more images that we see digitally, um, 
the more we lose our ability to actually understand emotion. Mm. So very often uh, as we're growing up, we understand when an older person has felt upset, uh, sad, uh, angry, um, happy, and, and, you know, an ecstasy over time, these images who are, that are bombarding us and our children mean that we don't read emotions so well. It's just another image. And we are bombarded with tens of thousands of images. I know, I know it's about a thousand a day, um, generally speaking, but tens of thousands. And, and so rather than looking, we're just skipping. Okay. We're not actually registering the emotion. We're just saying, okay, another one, another one, another one, another one. And the, the problem is if we don't slow down and we don't get off the web or the net, if we don't turn off our phones, if there's no time away from the contraption, we almost become like a machine learning algorithm mm. that is desensitized. So one of the things that I'm hoping is that the technology doesn't put us in our place and we don't realize it's putting us in our place, whatever that means. And I can give you a good example here, the one that I mentioned on that PBS interview. Mm -hmm. And it was literally uh, looking at um, navigation systems and how people believe their navigation system, even if it leads them down a ramp into, uh, you know, down a boat ramp into water or down a, a flight of stairs right. uh, into a shopping mall um, a concourse or onto a runway as was one, one incident. And it wasn't, it's not just that we can't remember each other's phone numbers because let's call that the mundane. Mm -hmm. We can't. Right. And it doesn't matter perhaps that we should remember each other's numbers if we've got a phone to auto dial. But if you're left without your phone, it will matter if you can't reach your child. But the thing is with this particular navigation example, uh, a driver was listening or looking at his Apple maps navigation. He's on a runway, the runway, the company that runs the runway knows that people have been going there by accident uh, because there's no barrier and you know, it's not the first time it's happened. So they put up a barricade and the person stops at the barricade, gets out of his car, moves the barricade and <laughs> proceeds to go down the runway. And that's when you've got the override. That's what I'm worried about. I call it override. It's not just yeah. I'm listening and I've forgotten the number and my memory is not so good anymore. And who cares about, you know, do I remember my child's number? I don't even know what my child's number is. But it's rather the navigation can make you get out of your vehicle, remove a barricade and proceed down a runway when you can see there are planes on the other side of the tarmac. And it's the same when I get into Lyft or Uber uh, in the States mm -hmm. and I say to the person, you're going the wrong way. Oh, no, no, no. But my GPS is saying this. But I said, you should be turning left. I do this route every morning yes. with my daughter. And they're saying, no, no, no. But it's like 12 kilometers west. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, I know where I'm going, you know, no, 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 you're probably wrong. Well, uh, but why won't you listen to me? And this is the problem, the override. Right. The override. That's interesting. You have to say that the, the machine is sort of like overriding or over or overwriting uh, the common sense that is inside a person's brain um, is a little yes. terrifying. Which by the way, side note, um, I imagine that you are a person who speaks kindly uh, to strangers and I am that way too. And uh, have you had some good, um, have you made some good connections with your Lyft and Uber drivers before? Oh yes. I have beautiful, beautiful exchanges with the Lyft and Uber drivers. And uh, you know, very often 
they will stop their vehicles when I get to a destination and they will come and ask me, can I have a hug? And oh. I say, yes, you, you can, you can, I, I embrace you. And I, you know, I remember, uh, I mean, there have been many occasions and uh, they're so special that I, I, I don't feel like people are strangers. You know, I always feel this notion. My husband always says we're all adopted, you know, and the, the truth is, um, I feel that way. We, you know, are we really distant, Lisa? You know, if we were to go back one generation, two, three, you know, even now we're six degrees of separation, right? You've read all the statistics to the mathematics behind that. I've seen documentaries on, you know, parcels being sent one way and then coming back all the way from Africa back to the US. There's been some amazing studies done on six degrees, but the truth is we're probably between two and three, some of us in the corporate world, um, but even one. But, but beyond that, if you see the other person as being a member of the wider family, that you, you know, they're not a stranger. Right. Um, so yes, I love meeting strangers. I've done artworks. Uh, one year in 2015, I took my children to a four week retreat uh, at the beach in Tartra, New South Wales, mm -hmm. and we didn't have devices. And the artwork that I ran was every day we were at the beach, I would look around me and if there was a group of people or a person less than three meters in our radius, I would go up to them and say uh, a question. And that question was, uh, what are the unintended consequences of technology? And uh, the kids would be amazed that an hour after I got someone to put a word down on a piece of paper mm -hmm. uh, for this 10 by 10 tile artwork, that we would be still there chatting. Um, I heard Dreamtime stories from indigenous people in Tathra uh, in remote locations where my children, who are at the time between the ages of four and 12 were listening to Dreamtime stories from the Yuan clan uh, where we were being told that large cedar trees were being transported by whales in the ancient times. And my children would ask me, do you believe this mum? And I said, well, why, why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I believe this Dreamtime story? What do you think it means? And, and where has our innocence gone when we don't believe? And I think that this notion of believe is a, is a recurring theme. You know, if, if I can't listen to someone's life world where they believe in their heart that whales transported cedar trees from one place in Tartha, New South Wales to, for example, uh, Aladala, then who am I? Who am I to trash somebody else's belief system? Or who am I to say uh, this was not possible because I just can't see whales doing that today? You know, who am I? We have to have the spirit of a child, Lisa. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. And I think that at some point along the line, you know, there became this divide between or the word believe became a dirty word almost because if you believed something without like scientific evidence that you could look at, you know, and touch, uh, then it, it, it wasn't uh, viable or valid, you know, in, in the modern world, quote unquote, this is all quote unquote. Um, and, uh, and, and that just sort of kills innovation as opposed to if you could accept that things that you can't necessarily see or touch with your five human senses do exist. We just haven't found the science to uh, bring them to our five senses yet. I mean, yes, I'm just yes. everything you say. Well, well, uh, let's look at love. Let's look at the, let's look at love. You try and prove to me scientifically that it, love exists. Come on. 
<laughs> you know, I, 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 come on, you know, show me the science behind this notion of love that drives the world, should drive the world. You know, why does a mum love her baby? Why does one partner love their partner? Why does somebody love the homeless and wish for them not to go without food or shelter uh, and a warm shower? You know, what is it about this love? We can't see it, Mm -hmm. but it exists. And so this is the fundamental element when we look at this notion of um, unity of the mind and the heart and us being propelled to that word compassion to act. What makes us act? What makes us be dynamic? What makes us do something? Because in this society, we're finding words um, are pro- prolific and they proliferate, um, but they sometimes don't carry meaning when right. they're not backed up by action. And love, Lisa, I think is one of those things where the faculties and the senses come together to act but I'm moved by love. So when I tell people, you know, what is my premise here? Mm -hmm. My premise is to be moved to act by love. It's this motion that makes us do something. Why do you get up and make breakfast for somebody? Because you're you're kind. Yeah, you are maybe, but you love to do that. You, and you do it with love. And, and everyone knows, you know, sometimes when you have visitors over and they say, Oh, I love this coffee or I loved your roast. And I reply, it was all done with love. That's the only reason. It's not because my roast is better than yours or the other person's or my coffee's. You know, it's instant coffee for goodness sake. It's not that. <laughs> you know, it's I did it with love yeah. and joy. And I couldn't wait for you to come to visit me. And I can't wait for you to come to visit me again. And I think same with my students. When I see my students at work, mm-hmm. it's like I, I have this, um, this phrase, you know, the corporate world always says time is money. And I'm busting to write a book, Time is Love. Oh, please do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm busting. I'm busting. I've been thinking, you know, for those listening, the domain name was available until about six months ago. I think it still is. But it's like, that's it, you know. We, we are so hung up. And this is sometimes where corporates fail because they're so rushed to get the document out yesterday or the customer client to be satisfied with signing on the dotted line for the contract last month that they forget time equals love time doesn't equal money time time equals money to the people who are hungry for money not for the rest of us Mm -hmm. time is love means you can come in i'm going to make you feel like we've got a thousand hours to talk and that my attention is fully on you because i love you as a human being and i'm more concerned about why uh, how you came into my room and that you're going to leave knowing a little bit more than what you came in and feeling settled so you can do your next action, whatever that might be, the next task, whether it's your PhD, whether it, whatever it's for. But I, I try not to, I'm squeezed by time at work. I always am, but I try not to f- make the other person feel, and it's n- a natural thing now. I would rather spend out of the hour, 50, five, zero minutes talking about them mm-hmm. and me together than worrying about the actual task. The task will get done. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, Katina, I took so many notes before I sat down to do this interview and I, and I was sweating because I said, you know, I don't understand anything that I'm looking at. I'm not, I'm an artist. I'm an actor. I'm a writer. I'm not an engineer. I don't really understand, you know, the ins and outs of technology. I'm going to sound so stupid. And, and to hear you speak, 
I'm like, I didn't need a single note. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. And you say that's another thing, right? Tactically, you go into industry, people do make you feel dumb, no matter if you've got 10 degrees. Yeah. If you don't know, you know, why is it when we enter a new workplace, and there are gems, by the way, I think I've been blessed to be surrounded by, by, by gems and good teams. Mm -hmm. But why is it that some people think by sharing and by teaching you the ropes or learn, helping you learn the ropes, whatever that expression is, uh, it's diminishing them. But what they don't realize is that when you share, you increase, you don't lose anything. Yes. When you love someone, love increases in you. It doesn't diminish. It's not like money where you give money away and you lose it. Love, instruction, support, sharing, all of these things raise you up. They, they, they make you richer as a person. They don't make you poorer. And that's the thing with love. It's free. And that the more you give of it, the, the richer you are in your spirit, but so is the other person. And they are reciprocating with whatever they have to reciprocate. It may not well be love at the, at the beginning, but this is the thing with love and with, with instruction and sharing. And uh, if I can call it social capital, that the more you give of it, you don't, you don't come out second best or you don't come out a loser or you don't come out with less money. You come out richer. And that's what communities know that, when they have nothing to do with money as our ancient communities did not have anything to do with money. It had to do with sometimes a bartering or supporting each other to exist. You know, I'll give you two eggs if you give me some uh, weight or whatever it was, but it was not really about money. You connected on a level that was not bound by time was not bound by money. It was about sharing. So you would wake up in the morning and you would start to tend to your, to your animals, right? Your sheep or your goats, or you'd go and visit the crops or you'd go and sow seeds. We have gone so far away from that mentality where we used to meet in meeting places, in gatherings, in corroborees, in, in places of worship. We've gone so far away from this that we've disconnected one another from that, which is the most important thing, which is each other. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. And um, uh, this brings me to this, the point that I wanted to ask you about regarding storytelling, because I know that you've, that you incorporate ideas of storytelling uh, into your teaching, which is of course an ancient art of sharing. Um, and I, and I feel like has so much to do with empathy and community. Could you speak on, on why you use storytelling, why it inspires you? Yes. I mean, from the youngest of ages, I would stand next to my mother who was cooking and she'd always, her first job in the mornings was always to prepare the, the meal for the afternoon. Mm -hmm. That was her habit. Um, someone very uneducated, by the way, uh, she said to me all the time, I love to write stories, but that's where education finished. But at that point, when you look, you're speaking to uneducated people, what do they have? They can't tell you, you know, E equals MC squared. They can't even tell you about algebra. They tell you the stories that were oral tradition. They tell you the stories they learned from their parents and their parents learned from their parents and their ancestry. And so the stories come down and I was forever amazed as a two and three and four year old that my mother could remember these long like poems mm -hmm. without even reading them. And I'm thinking, how does she remember these sayings? Um, but the stories are recurring in my family because they were the ways that I think my parents were able to imbue in me um, their history. And uh, if I could say 
a context for where they are. They, you know, my mother got on a boat at 17, arrived in Australia with hardly anything and, you know, began her life. Uh, but most people, you know, the migrant story is such, you know, I moved location, I had nothing, I had to start from scratch. Now, these stories, even stories from World War II, you know, my father was a, a young boy who had just lost his mother during the war, who was giving birth to the sixth child. And dad's telling me they had no shoes and they were living in caves. Like wow. what? Because the Germans, you know, and forgive me for, for mentioning any particular um, race, but at, in that context, there was an invasion and a burning of his village. But these were just stories. And the stories that actually emanated was not we should hate the, the enemy. It was this should never happen again. Right. You know, we can't live in another society where people are being shot at or there is wrongdoing or there is intolerance or, you know, there's burning of villages. You know, yeah. it, rather than hate coming out, it was love that was coming out. Um, and so I think stories are very important because they have something ancient about them and they bring all people together without being discriminatory e.g in most of the uh, uh, faiths uh, in the world uh, whether they're monotheistic or or in in any other context um, they've always got a flood story you know it's, it's an amazing thing yeah. even the the ancient uh, aboriginal tribes talk about floods and they have them in their drawings and they have them in their dream time so i always think about what's What's great about stories, stories are not discriminatory. Stories bring people together because it's a common language, even if it's not spoken in the English, for example. Sure. But, you know, it's like going back to the ancient art of drawing, acting, poetry, uh, rhetoric, um, dance and music. And you know what? We're killing these forms of art today because they are seemingly the furthest apart from technology, and what we're trying to do is technofy art, technofy everything into virtual reality, or get the poet to come in and give a VR thing on ABC. Actually, no, the art form of acting and theater and poetry and, and playing a musical instrument and having rhetoric, these are important things that we're losing. Mm -hmm. And if we don't tell the stories, we're not gonna even do the dancing and we're not gonna do the, the singing either. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. And uh, I, I agree. And I, again, I think it's, I think it's so revolutionary for you to speak like this about holding on to these very analog forms when you are in the business of technology. And I just, uh, I just love that. I just love that you, that you exist. And I love that you are a voice for these things in spaces where they might not get much attention. And you know, I'm um, a comedian, sometimes a comedian, and a storyteller. <laughs> I mean, this isn't a very funny podcast, but I sometimes am. And, uh, you know, I have fr many friends who are comedians who have actually, you know, been given the opportunity to participate in Zoom shows, and they won't do it. They just won't do it on principle because part of the reason why they are so compelled to perform is the electricity in the room, in person, the pheromone mm. jumping back and forth, the laughter that you feel with your body. Um, and uh, in a way, I think that's a rebellious act to, to not necessarily jump in with two feet into everything being virtual. And now we can be virtual forever and never be in person because something really is lost. I, I agree. And I've written three words down here in preparation for our interview. I had mental, physical, and natural. 
And mm-hmm. I think exactly as you're saying, you know, what makes people happy and maybe happy is the wrong word. What makes people content or satisfied? You know, not, it, deep down during this time of COVID, we've all got access to computing. And if we don't, the government has given our kids access, even an internet connection to do remote learning. Mm-hmm. But if someone was to say to you, what do you really miss about this time? What's really affected you in your guts? You know what most people would say? Mm-hmm. I miss my friends. I miss yeah. going for a cup of coffee and smelling the coffee. I miss being next to them and embracing them if I have to. I, I miss being together. And perhaps we never um, envisage this, but one of the great things that has come out of this disastrous pandemic is the fact that some of us have, who have been blessed with families and friends and housemates have come back together into this stronghold and said, oh, wow, why was I taking this for granted for so long? I'm so lucky to be able to get up, go down the hallway to my son or my daughter or my spouse and say, do you want to just have a break? Or gee, I like being with you. Gee, I like you. And why is it that I'm spending 80% of my you know, waking time outside of my home? Why is it that, that I'm not with you more? And, and many of us have had those two revelations. One is I miss my friends. I even miss my strangers. You know, I miss walking down this path. And then the second one is how lucky am I that my house is filled with chatter or with something other than just me, myself and I. Ah, yes. I'm writing this down. I miss my friends. I even miss my strangers because um, I'm right there with you. And I really miss the, I miss the interstitial interactions, the interactions Mm -hmm. of making eye contact and smiling when you walk by someone, which now of course your smile is covered with a mask. Um, And I miss (laughs) speaking to my barista and, um, you know, asking them how their, how their art is doing outside of their, their day job. And, um, these, these little tiny moments that you don't really think about, but there's the absence is definitely felt. Um, do you know what, do you know what it is, Lisa? It's that one word spontaneity, which the machines are trying to kill, you know, thanks for your algorithms out there, tech, and thanks for the, you know, the shortest path. I'd like to go on the other path that I wanted to go on because maybe just maybe I was meant to go on that path to meet the stranger that I might marry one day. You know, I don't know, Lisa, I don't know. But that spontaneity is exactly what it means to be human. It's not knowing everything. It's, it's looking into each other's eyes and going, man, the 40,000 variables in your iris are such a mystery to me. I'm going <laughs> to spend, you know, the next 100 years figuring out who you are, but I'll never know the whole answer. And that spontaneity is what computers are trying to replace. It's numbers driven. It's quantified driven. I don't care about the quantification. I care about the person who's analog. I care about interfacing with the digital to make my life easier, to collaborate better, to make uh, the complex decisions um, more efficient. But I'm not interested in replacing my spontaneity in what makes that thing that I can't see, that love valve between two people happen. And that love my God, you try and quantify that, you'll need all the supercomputers in the universe and quantum computers, and you still won't be able to do it. <laughs> You're, so right. You're so right. It's about it's about the mystery and spontaneity feels like magic. Absolutely. Yep. You're preaching to the choir. Um, I love it. I love it. Yeah. 
Uh, I, um, I, I know that we're about at an hour and I'm just having such a, a blast. And uh, I want to end this with one uh, quick question. Uh, I've been ending my interviews with questions from uh, Zany, which is the app that I work for that brings um, you know, authentic human connection as much as possible into remote workspaces. And it does that by the power of uh, conversation. And so uh, I've been pulling questions from Zany to ask my guests. And so um, the question that I will ask you, Katina Michael, is where do you go to get inspired? Uh, look, uh, a large part of my life is uh, my church life. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's nothing like going to a holy temple just to be quiet and silent. Um, and that's where I'm drawing in energy from the maker whom I uh, label or, or identify as God. And that's where shoulder to shoulder, I'm standing with other people who are also seeking the same thing. But you say, I'm not alone. And it's, it's a community. Um, I'm in communion. I'm in communion with my God, our God, uh, the maker of the world, the universe. I'm in communion with the person standing next to me. I'm in communion with my family, but mostly that's where my recovery occurs so that I'm able to go back into, if I can say the world and share, but I'm forever in those opportunities that I have uh, giving thanks with great gratitude for all the things that I have around me, for all the people that I have around me, for all the actions that I'm able to make with my hands, with my feet, with my mind. Um, that's my time of giving thanks uh, with gratitude, but also not forgetting as well uh, that I'm in need often myself. I'm, I'm asking for the forces of nature to come and act in a way that's in synergy with my own will, because there's two parts here. It's, it's my will I want to do and I want to act in this way and I want to fulfill. And then there's this other higher power, I believe that's God's will, which meets somewhere in the center. And if the two things come together, then an action happens in fullness. At the same time, however, I don't negate the people around me who are unbelievers or atheists or hold to agnostic belief. I love them just as much. And I know God loves them just as much. Um, but that's where I get my source of inspiration. And to me, uh, that's, a, that's something that has been a constant in my life since a little child. Wow. Katina, you are extraordinary and so inspiring and to me. And I, um, I really can't thank you enough for, for sharing yourself with me uh, with the, for this hour. Really? How, how fortunate am I, huh? You, you, you weren't, a, I don't think we were ever strangers, Lisa, but um, I've been really happy to, to hear about your background too and your acting career and uh, your uh, career as a comedian. I love that. I love that. The smartest people are the comedians. I mean, they're the truth tellers, some say. Of course they are. Yes. They've got the guts and they've got the learning. So I have to come to one of your gigs. I mean, yes, someday in person. I truly hope you do it more. I'll come to you and give you a live gig. Oh, <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, in Australia or in Arizona, wherever I end up next. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much, Katina. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 12 of What's Betwixt Us, Stories of Working While Human. I highly recommend you poke around and explore Katina's website, katinamichael.com. 
where you'll find her speeches, writings, research, and tons of recommendations for further learning. That's K-A-T-I-N-A-Michael.com. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at Z-A-N-I-E dot A-P-P. Human first, everything else after. Human first, everything else after.